Welcome to Breaking the Lathe. My name is Claire, and I'm going to start today by talking about what's been a pretty major crisis, which is the winter storm that swept across the United States, hitting Texas particularly hard. But there are some harrowing stories coming from all across the country regarding that, so I want to get to a few of those as well and talk about how and why we've seen this all play out the way that it has. So before getting to Texas, I want to talk about this story regarding a grocery store in Portland, a Fred Meyer, where, due to power outages, they had thrown out all of the perishables in the store. Reading an article from the Oregonian, Roughly a dozen Portland police officers faced off with a small group at a northeast Portland Fred Meyer on Tuesday after people tried to take food that had been thrown away. Workers at the Hollywood West Fred Meyer threw away thousands of perishable items because the store, like many others, had lost power in an outage brought on by the region's winter storm. Images on social media showed mountains of packaged meat, cheese, and juice, as well as whole turkeys and racks of ribs that had been tossed into two large dumpsters near the store. A few people gathered at about 2.30pm at the store in hopes of salvaging the food. But within a few hours, people seeking food from the dumpsters began to report police officers showing up to guard the dumpsters and prevent people from taking the items. Now think about it. These were perishables that had been refrigerated up until the power outage, and then were thrown out into freezing temperatures. So this was all food and juice and stuff that was all still good. So the residents unable to go grocery shopping during this winter storm went out to the dumpsters and started getting that food out of the dumpsters. Then the manager of the store called the cops on the people to prevent all this, which seems to me like a petty and cruel thing to do during this winter storm and pandemic. Like, they claimed that it was all for food safety reasons, but that's pretty transparently bullshit. Like, if anything, the food is in colder temperatures outside than in refrigeration indoors even, so concerns of food safety pretty instantly ring hollow. To me, it's pretty clear this is very much the store and the police both acting in service of the grander structure of capital and how it handles these kind of crises, which is as a means of ramping up consumer activity. And to kind of get to why uh, this natural response is to uh, act in service of ramping up consumer activity, it's important to understand a term that I've used a few times in the podcast, which is that America's the consumer of last resort for the entirety of global production. Um, and understanding the logic of how the U.S. serves as that consumer of last resort requires an understanding of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. So I guess a brief overview of that is, like, let's say you've got a hypothetical company which makes $100,000 of profit after all expenses are deducted from income each year and its assets are valued at $10 million. So it's making 1% of the company's value and profit every year. Then let's say that that company splits that valuation up into a million shares at $10 each. The company goes public and investors buy those stocks and the value goes up. Through the sale of those stocks to investors, the company now has access to an additional $5 million in investment capital. So if the company continues to have $100,000 profit years, it's considered as doing worse because the total value of the assets has gone up, but the profit has remained the same. So in this scenario, the company is considered to actually be actively failing, despite still being, you know, numerically profitable, because the profits aren't increasing to match the increased valuation. So it's now only making 0.67% of the company's value and profit each year. Uh, so let's change that hypothetical to say that it expands its operations using that investment capital. 
and increases its profits to $150,000 a year. In that case, the company is remaining equally profitable proportionally, um, but that's also considered a failure because the rate of profit is merely remaining the same. So the value pumped into it by the investors is not actually growing when considered proportionally to the investment. Like, the profit is still just at 1% of the value of the company, which, you know, that goes against the rationale for the investor to make their investment because their investment is made under the assumption that their investment will grow, not remain the same. So in order to be considered a success to the investors, the percentage of profit needs to go up. And as that percentage goes up, that becomes a more and more difficult task because there's kind of this feedback loop of, you know, once a company demonstrates that it's capable of increasing that percentage of profit, it attracts more investment capital, which pumps up the dollar amount of that valuation. And as that dollar amount goes higher, each percentage point, you know, also gets proportionally higher. So as a company becomes more profitable, it becomes increasingly difficult for it to remain increasingly profitable to satisfy the investors. And like, this is, I think, where a lot of confusion comes in because profitability to the investor is not the same as profitability in a strictly numerical business sense, right? Because a business can still be perfectly profitable in terms of making more money than it is spending. But if that profit percentage of the company has decreased relative to its valuation, like its investors are, you know, they're not losing money, but their investment becomes less valuable, because basically, it means that their money is failing to increase the profitability, right? So it is when that percentage of profit grows that their investment really grows. The investors can view a perfectly profitable company as still being a situation where they're losing money. Um, this is a very quick glossing over and uh, overly simplified telling of this concept, and it has some much broader implications, and as a result, I'll probably do a full episode breaking down the tendency of the rate of profit to fall and point out some real-world demonstrations where perfectly profitable companies have gone on to impose mass layoffs and stuff like that, despite having record profits because those record profits weren't sufficiently record-breaking enough to satisfy the investors. But this quick and simplified glossing of it will do for the current purpose. So because capital needs to continue to increase its profit in that increasing percentages type way, it does everything it can to make that so. People wonder why it's cheaper to ship things across the globe to avoid labor costs than it is to, you know, pay a little bit more for labor here and, you know, avoid that whole uh, shipping problem. But the reasoning for that is because logistics broadly scale better than labor costs because you can use logistical networks for more than one thing, right? Like, logistical networks are far less specialized than labor. While there is certainly some specialization within logistics, it's far more generalized than labor. Like, you can use the same logistical networks for a broad swath of consumer goods, but you can't use necessarily the same labor for that. And on top of that, uh, who's to say that you're not profiting off of those logistical networks themselves? Like, that's a big part of why Amazon is so profitable is because they make money off of their logistical network. So the companies trim all the costs they can through cutting labor costs and things like that in order to increase profits, but there's only so much that you can do with that. You can only cut so much of your costs. There comes a point where, you know, you need to 
increase your production um, and all of those increases in production must be met with a corresponding increase in consumption and this all has you know side effects of ravaging the ecosystem and there being these horrendous imperialist exploits of you know foreign wars and whatnot to facilitate that expansion of production but the consumption is also equally necessary for this to function and that is the purpose of the consumer within the imperial core and that's what's meant by the uh, American consumer being the consumer of last resort for global production, is that they are there to make whole, basically, that equation of global production to increase that necessity of capital to increase its profits. So when shocks occur and you have this grocery store throwing out food, the waste is a loss, which is perfectly fine for capital so long as the waste is offset by consumption because the production is necessarily increasing by the logic of the market to demand that the rate of profit to increase in order to combat its tendency to fall. So there's this overproduction which is by design wasteful because it's seeking to increase consumption and you can't sell to consumers products which have not been produced. And this waste is accounted for by the assumption that the waste is offset by increasing value from consumption. Uh, so the acceptable offset to throwing out these groceries or what have you would be the ravenous hoarding of groceries and other supplies at a different grocery store. But what's not acceptable to capital is the waste being utilized, because the waste being utilized represents that waste explicitly not being offset by consumption elsewhere, but rather it represents those consumption demands being fulfilled by the utilization of that waste from overproduction. And that's explicitly not acceptable to capital to have the waste being utilized like this because the waste being utilized represents that waste not being offset by consumption elsewhere. And this can't be acceptable to capital within the imperial core where we're supposed to be the consumer of last resort because that represents a breakdown in the logic that the system is predicated on. And this is certainly not the only situation with this dynamic at play. There's an element to this surrounding basically every part of why it's more expensive to be poor. And that's not to say that it isn't petty and cruel, because it certainly is petty and cruel, but it is that way because it is upholding a function of capital on which capital cannot concede. Which brings us to Texas. Now, there was a post from the mayor of Colorado City, Texas, who's since resigned that's gone around online and reads thus. Let me hurt some feelings while I have a minute. No one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim, it's your choice. The city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout. If you don't have electricity, you step up and come with a game plan to keep your family warm and safe. If you have no water, you deal without and think outside of the box to survive and supply water to your family. If you are sitting at home in the cold because you have no power and are sitting there waiting for someone to come rescue you because you're lazy is direct result of your raising. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. Folks, God has given us the tools to support ourselves in times like this. This is sadly a product of socialist government where they feed people to believe that the few will work and others will become dependent for handouts. Am I sorry that you've been dealing without electricity and water? Yes, but I'll be damned if I'm going to provide for anyone that is capable of doing it themselves. We have lost sight of those in need and those that take advantage of the system and meshed them into one group. 
Bottom line, quit crying and looking for a handout. Get off your ass and take care of your own family. Bottom line, don't be a part of the problem, be a part of the solution. Now, obviously, this is an incredibly cruel thing to say, particularly, you know, during a cold snap, which, you know, Texas is wholly unprepared for. I mean, up here in Minnesota, it got incredibly cold, but we have the infrastructure to handle this, and our energy production is all built to handle that extreme cold, so we weren't really all that impacted by it, at least relatively speaking. But, you know, in Texas, it's much colder than the insulation and heating systems are really equipped to handle, and, you know, they don't have things like snow plows or street salting going on during the winter, and on top of that, you know, no one really knows how to drive in the snow, and... Lord have mercy if anyone has rain tires or anything like that, because rain tires are incredibly bad if you're driving in snow. Don't have rain tires if you're going anywhere with snow. But because snow's not really a concern there, you don't have that kind of understanding, like you don't know how to deal with snow. Basically, you've got this place where the infrastructure just can't handle it. And the machinery, like snowplows and whatnot, just isn't there to deal with it. Like, you see all these people shoveling the snow with, you know, like, dirt shovels. And I don't know if you've ever tried to shovel snow with a dirt shovel, but it's horrible. Like, you basically can't do it. It's just awful. Like, a big part of the issue is straight up a lack of tools and infrastructure there that is capable of handling this period. So, it was really this horrific crisis. Like, there's been a death toll uh you know i've seen the death toll nationally reported around 70 people mostly in texas and a lot of these people have you know died in their homes from hypothermia due to lack of heat and in addition like during all this we're seeing these massive energy bills up to tens of thousands of dollars being sent out to the people of texas that did have power due to the way that the energy grid is marketized in texas like you see that during this crisis, the supply and demand price mechanism is also serving to recuperate profits that would otherwise be lost, rather than the energy company or something losing money as a result of being unprepared and uh, insufficient state response. The market forces are working with the exact same logic of the police at the grocery store, preventing the people from uh, accessing dumpsters of food. Like The crises are no impediment to the market, because... Due to the hollowing out of state capacity, there's really no alternative because the state no longer exists to facilitate livelihood of people, but rather to facilitate the market. And now granted, these massive energy bills, they aren't, you know, statewide. They all seem to be connected to this app, Gritty, which allows subscribers to pay for their electricity using immediately responsive market data rather than standard cost rating systems. But the problem was certainly exacerbated by the fact that the energy companies and the energy grid in Texas is set up in such a way that they explicitly can't readily import or export energy. And you see this app that a lot of people are using, and, you know, it's just like all these other Silicon Valley quote-unquote disruptions that exist. Because in all these instances, the primary innovation is you know, a movement away from more regulated structures towards one which exist within, you know, loopholes that flout governmental power and regulation and into more and more marketized systems. And in that shifting toward more and more deregulated and marketized systems, society becomes more subject to the shocks of the market and will continue to feel more 
grossly the insistent logic of capital's need to recuperate its lost profits by any means necessary. And so the end result of both the response in Portland by the police to the dumpster and the uh, hiking of these energy bills are indicative of the same thing, which is capital maintaining itself in the face of crises. And the state has been hollowed out to the point of having no effective function to counter capital in service of the populace. And like that's not to say that there's no capacity for a more humane response to these kinds of crises. Like The main problem is that capital is more capable of reacting rapidly to recuperate those profits uh, than the state is capable of you know, assessing these kinds of situations and responding. And that's only been exacerbated by the abdication, I guess, of state power to these corporations and to capital more broadly. Because we're at the point where, due to regulatory capture and the role of state-sanctioned violence primarily existing to serve as enforcers of capitalist property rights, the natural tendency has become for capital to dictate the terms to which the state responds. And this maintenance of profits, it occurs mechanically due to these market processes and our current situation is that capital has really outgrown any governance and even in the best of situations, capital is wholly unresponsive to anything beyond its own logic. But with the lack of any sort of effective unified or collective movement from labor to confront capital and try to force it to remain accountable to any apparatus which is ostensibly representative of public interest, like that is very fertile ground for capital to supersede government in this way. Like, I think it's important to have an understanding of capital that recognizes that it, at this point, functionally is, you know, a form of government itself, which transcends any national boundary and is wholly unbeholden to any popular input because it functions only according to the logic of attempting to grow the investment of the investors. Now, some would say that, you know, capital is beholden to, you know, at least the popular input of investors and... Uh, that a solution could be to, you know, make investment itself kind of a popular input mechanism. But, you know, that was sort of what we saw with the whole GameStop debacle. But that can't ever be a mechanism of popular input because that's explicitly an attempted transference of collective political will into this hyper-individualized notion. And even beyond that, the way that it operates, that capital operates, is merely in service of the material class interest of the capitalists, not some democratic or oligarchic process of determining the moral whims of capitalists. It's It functions mechanically, so whether or not a capitalist desires to be good makes no real difference, because the mechanisms that they must support uh, in order to maintain the current order uh, functions according to this logic, and... It functions without any particular personal input or direction. The profit-seeking mechanisms of capital will seek profit regardless of whether or not it's in line with any given capitalist's personal values. But I understand why people tend toward these ideas that capitalists being more moral or good would fix a lot of problems. And it stems from this hyper-individualized notion that we have of ourselves and others, which is the individual self that capital seeks to transform us all into being. 
And that notion is felt particularly strongly within the sphere of politics. Those who find the current political structure to be worth engaging in, they generally tend to approach it with this hyper-individualized mindset, like, my vote is very important, I am a good person because I voted the way that I did, those who voted to oppose me are bad, and those who didn't vote are responsible for the bad things happening because they didn't care enough to vote for the good things to happen instead of the bad things. And this is why you see a lot of scolding of Texans dying in the freeze for voting Republican. And then there are those who disengage from politics, and they also tend to have this individualized notion. But admittedly, they do follow it to a much more logical conclusion, which is that they as an individual have no hope in causing change. That is correct, because as an individual, they certainly do not. But both of these notions fail to account for the possibility that perhaps politics can be changed, but only through collective action. Because we've lost that understanding of ourselves as beings reliant on one another. We've forgotten that, to quote David Graeber, the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make, and could just as easily make differently. When I read that mayor's response to the winter storm, I'm reminded of one of Margaret Thatcher's more infamous quotes. I think that we've been through a period where too many people have been given to understand that when they have a problem, it's the government's job to cope with it. I have a problem, I'll get a grant. I'm homeless, the government must house me. They're casting their problem on society, and you know there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women, and there are families. And no government can do anything except through people, and people must look to themselves first. It's our duty to look after ourselves, and then also to look after our neighbor. People have got the entitlements too much in mind without the obligations. There's no such thing as entitlement unless someone has first met an obligation. So the Texas mayor really isn't expressing any uniquely evil sentiment, but rather he's simply expressing the evil inherent to the rationale which undergirds our government's relation to capital. Now, he may have done so too brazenly or openly, but ultimately most members of the government would agree with that undergirding sentiment. I mean, look at what Joe Biden and most of the Democrats support. They oppose things like Medicare for All, and it's all undergirded on this same logic and sentiment. Which is why the takeaway shouldn't be merely that, you know, Republicans are evil and the solution is to vote Democrat, but rather it should be to attempt to build a political power that can actually change the world that's gotten us here. Because this abdication of governance to capital is only going to increase without doing so. And we can see this process ramping up, because contrary to claims that Biden winning the presidency would result in a country that's more responsive to the needs of the people, we're seeing more examples of this abdication of governmental responsibility to capital occurring with ever-increasing frequency. I mean, look at the disastrous COVID vaccine rollout. The fact that it's been bungled so badly has been due in large part to the lack of any governmental capacity to enact any sort of national project. Uh, look at how long it's taken to just get checks out to people during this pandemic. Look at the Democrats' constant reneglements on all of their campaign promises. 
this is all happening with increasing frequency and people are experiencing more and more economic hardship and it's all due to this greater reliance on markets to serve the populace. Both the Republicans and the Democrats largely seek to resolve these economic issues by increasing the governing power of capital. A particularly egregious example of this is a Nevada bill that's been proposed by the Democratic Governor Steve Sisolak. Reading here from the Las Vegas Review-Journal, According to a draft of the proposed legislation obtained by the Review-Journal but not yet introduced in the legislature, Innovation zones would allow tech companies like Blockchain's LLC to effectively form separate local governments in Nevada, governments that would carry the same authority as a county, including the ability to impose taxes, form school districts and justice courts, and provide government services to name a few duties. Now, I haven't heard many people talking about this. I've you know, there have been a few people mentioning that this is essentially the reproduction of the company town, but there's also been kind of a response given by supporters of this bill against those claims that this would bring back company towns. And that is that the bill requires that these innovation zones still adhere to standard governmental practice of things like elections. You know, reading the bill, that is true to a point. Like, I'm no legal expert and there are probably going to be some loopholes within the text because it's all written in kind of a specific yet vague way. But even if I'm being as generous as I can to the bill, assuming that any loopholes should they arise would be swiftly closed, even given full benefit of the doubt, like they still grant the company the full authority to determine the framework in which those elections and other matters of governmental decorum occur. So like the institutions that will be voted upon or whatever, you know, these institutions that will be put in place in these innovation zones, rather than relying on any sort of slow process of hollowing out of the state through forces of marketization, they would almost certainly be founded with a structure that is already fully hollowed out, right? Like, at that point, they are wholly incapable of confronting capital because the company, you know, would establish the initial framework of the court systems, policing, taxation policy, healthcare, infrastructure, education, what have you. And like, there's no reason to believe that these communities would not be constructed to exist in a manner reminiscent of the company town. The company could be a major or sole owner in, you know, the institutions of the county that can be privatized, and they can set up a tax code so that the community there is wholly dependent on the company, so the ones that they can't be basically owners of wouldn't dare oppose them. And this is a Democratic governor proposing this. This isn't a Republican. This is a Democratic governor proposing this kind of abdication, which demonstrates that it's very much a bipartisan design. Now, obviously, this bill hasn't passed yet, and hopefully it won't pass. Hopefully, something like this is a bit too brazen in handing over the levers of power to capital. But I can't say for certain one way or another if I think it will pass, because I could also see this being viewed as low risk due to it only being the establishment of a county-level government. So who knows whether or not this bill will become law. Hopefully it doesn't. Still seems to me like yet another bellwether, though, for the direction that things continue to head. Don't get me wrong, this direction has been the heading for quite some time now, but it's worth pointing out that this process is accelerating, and it's accelerating despite the Democratic Party's insistence that it's trying to, you know, hold corporations accountable or be good for workers or whatever. You know, when Pete Buttigieg and Azilk, you know, the corporate goons who all masquerade as progressives, like, 
when they talk about things like public-private partnerships, that is that process of the infusion of the market into public institutions. And that can only serve to tie those institutions into the logic of profit-seeking. And that renders them incapable of prioritizing any public good over profit-seeking. And that's why I think it's important to, you know, recognize when you've got, you know, this rat or any of like, you know, the endless Justin Trudeau looking clones that all espouse the same type of technocratic solutioneering veiled in language, like not left or right, but forward or anything like that, because it's not innovation. It's not moving forward. It's tying governmental processes to market systems, which render them completely inert. Like, it's bad enough that the state already functionally doesn't exist in any positive capacity anymore, and it only exists to serve as enforcers of capital, as, you know, facilitators of capital. Like, I don't think we need it all tied up into an app or whatever ridiculous scheme they'll think up next, which will do nothing to actually improve material conditions or, you know, stave off the worst excesses of capitalism, but in fact will only serve to heighten the alienation of the populace from any communal understanding of power or change, and heighten those excesses of capitalism. Ultimately, the retreat of the state from wielding power itself toward a public good and instead existing to facilitate the market and capital accumulation will make crises in the future more and more resemble this recent Texas winter storm, Hurricane Katrina, and the like, because the institutions impacted by crises and shocks will be less accountable to popular input because the structures which historically have existed to hold them accountable to a system of democratic governance instead will have shifted to facilitate their market function. So we need to find a way to re-exert popular control over government and break from these processes of capitalism. Because if we don't, I mean, look at Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Maria, this winter storm, like, we are seeing these natural disasters occurring with ever-increasing frequency, and the government is no longer really there to respond to them. And the only solution I can think of for that is for us to find solidarity amongst ourselves, because that is how we will be able to actually unite and wield the power to confront capital. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the show, it's at patreon.com slash breaking the lathe, and you can find me on Twitter at Ice Nine Ocean. I'll talk to you next time. Bye.